Yeah, I don't remember. I I read about it. And I don't travel, so I don't didn't bookmark it. But I think it's in Japan or something. Like they actually have where you could rent a room, like you know, six foot by eight foot, like very tiny. But you get a bed. It's you know, close it up, lock the door, all that. So like you can get like like a miniature hotel for by the hour inside the apartment, inside security, just to deal with that stuff. Yeah, you know, in other countries they call those coffins. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 166 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Eric Davis. Hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A couple of quick announcements. I would really love it if you're a Rails person, if you go check out Rails Clips. And if you're an Angular person, go check out Angular Remote Conf. And those are both at what they're called.com. So, angularremoteconf.com and railsclips.com. I was trying to be concise, and then I realized it was being confusing, so... Anyway, we decided this week to talk a little bit about investing in your business, you know, so equipment, software, you know, other services like that. I'm wondering, when when you guys make a purchase, what's kind of the criteria you have for that? How awesome I feel. <laughs> I have to say, I do make a fair few impulse purchases, and I've been trying to, you know, be a little more deliberate about how money goes out of my company. Yeah, I mean, realistically, I guess it depends on the purchase. Um, and the reasons behind it, which, you know, is kind of what you do with any kind of purchase. If it's like a major purchase, like a laptop, and it's like replacing one that broke and I need it to work, like, you know, this is like a blocking type thing or costing me money, I just make it. Like, it's it's one of those, you know, quick draw, get it, you know, do whatever I need to do. Um, same if, like, my keyboard or mouse breaks or monitor breaks or anything like that that I know has a ton of value. It's just buy it, you know. Yeah. Maybe take a... Depending on how urgent it is, maybe take a little bit of research if there's a better option. I've actually, when I had a desktop, had a video card go out, which basically killed you know my multiple monitor setup. And I went online, bought something, had it overnighted, and had it the next day because it was so important. Like I didn't, I think I spent like forty or fifty bucks on shipping for like a thirty dollar card, but it was that important to my business. Other purchases like more discretionary things. Like I might take some time. I might put off. I actually use my budgeting software to really help me figure out like, you know, when I should buy stuff or when I shouldn't. How about you, Jonathan? Yeah. I mean, same deal here. There are certain tools that I use every single day that if something does happen to them, I immediately try to get myself back to at least where I was, if not better, because it's like an emotional drag that uh, just hits you every time you go to reach for that tool and it's not there. For example, this is going to sound dumb, but uh, I have this pen that I've been using and it just, I just love this pen. I think I picked it on one of the shows recently. It's like a $120 fountain pen that's handmade out of reclaimed 3000 year old wood. And the, the thing just like has become part of my daily routine. And on a, I was speaking in Las Vegas a couple months ago and I left the pen behind and I didn't think twice about it. I ordered another pen and had it overnighted to me because it was messing me up not having it. 
that's probably an extreme example, but I'm sure people could understand the same situation if their laptop got stolen or if they leave a phone in a cab. You know, the tools that you use every single day, just don't think about it. Just replace that thing immediately and, you know, deal with the credit card charge or whatever later. But uh, other things that come up with me more so when I was doing software development is making purchases that are related to executing a project. I don't know if that's jumping ahead. No, that's not. Go ahead. Yeah. So like if, you know, I've got a, a project, I've, I've given someone a proposal, there are always fixed bids. So, you know, I know I've got whatever it is, $50,000 to play with, and I can go out and spend 500 bucks on a service to make my life easier, deliver the product faster, deliver the outcome faster. I'm, you better believe I'm going to immediately do it. Recent example of that was uh, in my coaching room, I have a bunch of people who were researching verticals. And Eric has been in this, well, everybody, I think everybody on the show has been in this situation recently where they're researching a vertical. And so just as an experiment, I wanted to vet this product called Built With, builtwith.com. It's like a scraping. So I guess they go around and they scrape websites and they've been doing it for a long time. And they are clever about it and they determine if a given website was built with Ruby on Rails or Shopify. And they have all sorts of inf interesting information about how the um, site owner is using the site. So you can do, you can run reports like, show me a list of all the Shopify site owners in the United States who are spending more than $500 a month on third party plugins and software. And boom, you get this list of, I don't know, thousands usually of results. And now all of a sudden you've got a prospecting list if you're planning on doing cold outreach or something like that. And this product's 500 bucks a month for a SaaS. And I think that was at the lowest level. But it was worth it if only for research for my coaching room where I'm making 10 times $500 a month. So just to be able to recommend this product to people, literally as a product recommendation, it was worth it to me to spend the 500 bucks to try it just to see if it worked because that made me better as a coach in this particular case. So long way of saying that if you have a definite outcome in mind and that definite outcome has a dollar amount associated with it, then sure, I'm going to look around and buy all sorts of tools that uh, you know are a fraction of that price to make my life easier, to make me better at my job. Yeah, and I, I do a lot of that. I have it's not a set amount. I probably should actually make a budget for it, but I kind of give experiments. Like I'll say, like, I'm going to experiment with, you know, built with, or, you know, this other SaaS or maybe some kind of marketing thing, you know, and I have this goal of, I want it to two X, whatever, or, you know, have a return of something and I'll, I'll do it or use a tool or whatever it is for, you know, three, six months, however long, you know, it depends. And then at that time I'll like evaluate it. Like, did this actually fulfill what, what it was supposed to? And like, say, I use Edgar right now. Uh, what is it? MeetEdgar.com or something. Mm -hmm. I started with that. You know, I was like, let me give it a try for a couple months because I was using Buffer. And Buffer was, that was on the free plan. It worked okay. Wasn't great results, but for being free, it was a good. Tried out Edgar, used it for two months, started seeing like a significant difference between days I was using it and days I wasn't. I was like, okay, yeah, this is worth the, whatever, $49 a month it is. And so now like, that's actually become a, a tool that I've kept. I think I've been with them for a year or almost a year or something like that. But there's been other tools where I try it out, might use it a little bit, you know, didn't use it as much as I thought and became one of those like, you know, reoccurring SaaS subscriptions that you have that it's just charging you and you're not a user. Um, and then I kill off after a while, like, cause it's like, oh, I'm still paying for this, but I'm not using it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it just it seems like, you know, in the category of things like Edgar and what have you, that, yeah, I mean, if it looks like it might pay off, then, you know, there's some experimentation that happens. I do wonder a little bit, though, you know, at what point do you kill it off? Is it when you're not using it? Or are there other aspects that, I, I don't know, are, are there other things that, you know, make that decision for you? And what what is your criteria when you're looking at a service to determine, yeah, I really do want to try this one out. You know, how much trouble is it going to save me? How much money is it going to save me? How much work is it going to, I don't know. Right. I mean, it, it's important to have a goal for the purchase. So for the example of using built with, I had a couple of different goals that all combined to make it worth it to me to at least try it out even for 500 bucks because first I was going to be able to use it for my own prospecting plus I was going to be able to use it to sort of advise people be able to recommend it from a instead of just saying hey I heard about this thing built with I heard it's pretty cool I can actually say you know it's like this x y and z and here's how it compares to nerdy data or one of you know a, another similar product but maybe more specifically to your question I do try some stuff out where I'm not really sure what the goal is. For example, Facebook ads or Google AdWords. I'll go in and, and just like literally like, oh, I've been hearing about this. It's a really low investment. I'm just going to throw some cash at this and see if it moves the needle on anything. And uh, in that case, I set a budget, you know, something small like 5 or $10 a day. I'm going to run this for a month and then I'm going to shut it off and evaluate whether or not it was worthwhile. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah, another thing to think about is also, it's not sunk cost, I'm trying to remember the term, but the idea of, like Facebook ads, you know, it costs, you can set your budget, you pay for it, you know, each month or however you need to renew it. And, you know, if you're done, if the experiment was, you know, if not a failure, but you're not going to do it, you stop and you don't pay anymore versus like something else where you have to, you're committed to like a year up front or you have to buy something physical and you can't get your money back. So like kind of the ability to back out of the investment, back out or stop it or something like that. Um, that's another factor. Like a lot of SaaSes, like I've, I use one that does like forwarding stuff. So I can get, um, when I'm doing Shopify dev, it can actually, Shopify can talk to my laptop um, through like tunnels and SSL and all that stuff. And that service, I paid for it while I was working for a client who has Shopify stuff, stopped working with them for a little while um, and worked with other clients that didn't need it. I canceled the service. And then when I started doing Shopify dev again, I actually just reinstated my account. And it was just, there's no real downside to canceling and starting it back up. It was just, you know, you have a new plan and all that. Um, so in that case, it's really easy. It's just like, oh, I can just create a new account later on. So, you know, canceling, it's a good thing versus like if you have like a server that you're hosting, like canceling a server and losing all the data on the server and having to set it back up again, that's a harder cost to kind of scale up, scale down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it brings up the notion of lock-in and also switching costs. So like, for example, Basecamp is what I have been using for project management for years at this point. And for me to even try another system would have massive switching costs because I would basically be starting up in a new space. I'd basically be creating two or histories of projects in two different places, which I would almost never I mean, I don't know if there's some kind of like migration service from whatever productized to Basecamp or vice versa, but I'm going to be a lot less likely to experiment with stuff where there's lock-in and high switching costs. I mean, I wouldn't call Basecamp locked in because you can export your data, but you know what I mean? It's like 
if I start up a new project somewhere else and now I've got all this history over there and then I, you're like, you know what? Oh, I don't really like this. And then I've got a project with the same customer a year later and now I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to use Basecamp this time. It just gets weird. Yeah, I mean, I went through that a few times now with task trackers, right? You know, bug trackers, task trackers um, with a few clients, especially one client where I think in the last five, six years we've used three different systems for keeping track of bug tracking. And no one really had a huge investment, either time investment or money investment in any of these SaaS products. But the switching, it was a psychological cost and where do we put things and how do we move things. And so maybe it wasn't technically lock-in, but it was sort of some sort of psychological lock-in and just like an inertia lock-in as well. So there definitely was a switching cost associated with it for sure. Well, and there's also like training costs, like if you're switching you know, a system that has a process behind it, you know, how do you use it? Do you have to train people? Do you have to train your clients? You know, all that stuff. It's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, when you're onboarding a new employee or contractor, like it's, there's a huge amount of costs associated. A lot of it's time costs that people don't account for. So, uh, I'm also wondering like on, you know, we talked a little bit about equipment and hardware, you know, I know people that they, they buy a laptop or something and then they realize that they need more Ram in it, you know, and, so that's a few hundred dollar investment that they may or may not have right away, but they can kind of limp along for a while without the RAM. So at what point do you decide, okay, you know, I, I may not have the money for this, or it may make things a little bit tight, but it's going to pay off. How do you evaluate that? <laughs> I just get a Mac where I cannot upgrade the RAM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have that same problem, but like my hard drive... I keep running, I'll give you a concrete example. I keep running into warnings on the storage on my hard drive because my MacBook Pro has a 256 gig hard drive in it and it keeps running out of space. Now, granted, I keep doing things that will fill up the space, but you know, it's really inconvenient. So at what point do I decide, okay, I'm going to invest the $500 to get or $600. I don't remember because I just did this, but I, I bought a terabyte SSD for my MacBook Pro. Yeah, like at what point is, you know, you taking five hours to clean off, you know, 20 gigs off your laptop worth? Yeah, like I think with that, it's hard because it's like, you know, it's this kind of thing we just talked about, like, especially with computers, like you have a switching cost. Like Mm -hmm. if you're going to get a whole new laptop, there's a switching cost of going to it. And, you know, software and migration stuff's made a lot easier, but it's still time. It's still like a productivity impact. Right. And stuff like hard drive stuff where it's like, it's just, just huge amount of data you got to go through and it can't really have software help you with it very much. Like I've kind of come to the conclusion of when my disk starts filling up, I, I run a program to see what the biggest things are and just shove as much of that onto like a NAS that I have. Or like in your case, like you got a new SSD or maybe get USB, you know, hard drives or whatever. Yeah. I think the only way around that really is um, what I do whenever I get a new computer or when I'm getting ready to is I've, I find a good one for me and then I max out the RAM on the computer and max out the hard drive until it's like stupid. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to get a 15 terabyte SSD for 20 grand just because I I want to have my hardware where it's going to last as long as possible and I don't have to deal with those upgrades and stuff like that. Yeah, it was something I hadn't considered when I bought it. But the other thing is, is I finally got to the point because it was happening frequently enough to where I would actually have to spend, you know, a half hour or so you know, figuring out what to move off to Dropbox or to, you know, a local USB hard drive 
that it was like, you know, I've gotten to the point now where I think I'll save time by replacing it and reinstalling the OS. Right. Yeah. I got to a point where I would be heavy in code and my hard drive would fill up and database transactions would fail. And so I would have to jump out of the code, figure out what like family photos I need to move off or other BS. And that's when I went, you know, more at stream, like, okay, here's, I'm partitioning stuff off. I'm getting stuff off of my work computer. And it's also a good backup strategy too. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I I also have come close to filling up my hard drive in the last few months and so I use, uh, what's it called? Clean My Mac. I think that's what it's called. Clean My Mac. And, uh, it works very nicely to identify the big files. And usually it'll point to movies that I can delete or database dumps from really old projects or other things I can get rid of. But I've also been doing videos for my book and I've been, you know, putting them up for the people who purchased the uh, higher order, you know, the, high, the higher tier packages. And, those are not things that I can just sort of willy-nilly delete. Those are things that I actually want to have around, and so it's starting to become more of an acute problem, and I am probably going to need then some sort of external storage and just store them there instead. Yeah, it's definitely uh, more of an issue than I expected, because in the past it was always like, well, I can just get rid of some of the old podcasts or some of the old movies. Mm-hmm. But now that I have more video content, it's, it's becoming more of an issue, and I typically, when I buy a laptop, my assumption is I'm going to run the thing into the ground for about three or four years, and when it's begging for mercy, that's when I'll get a new one, and this has put a bit of a kink in my plan. Yeah, one client I work with, they do a lot of dev stuff. They have a company policy of, I think it's, I think it's every 24 months, but they might have changed it to every 18 months. They upgrade their laptops, whether there's a new one on the horizon or not, like, that's the policy. It's, the company policy is... You get a new laptop fully upgraded. It's, you know, as high as Apple will, will let you go. And then the other ones get transitions into like test machines and stuff like that. Just because they don't ever want to hit that, like I'm limping along or I am running at 85% productivity versus 100%. Yep. Yeah. The lost productivity costs are almost certainly way bigger than the cost of like having a, a hard drive that's twice as big. And I, I had the same situation as Ruben when I started podcasting seriously. All of a sudden my 11 inch macbook air wasn't cutting it uh, i think it had i think it was a 64 gig ssd i think that's what it was and all of a sudden i was always over 80 mm-hmm. percent so it was fine before that because i purposely didn't you know i didn't have any music on my work machine i didn't have any anything any big binary files like that on my work machine xcode was like the biggest thing and once it became clear that I was going to be podcasting for a long time, from then on out, I stopped buying the base model of whatever machine I wanted, and I started making sure that I had enough so that my typical usage should be below 50%, so I should never even have to think about it. And whatever my current usage was, then that would dictate which machine I bought. Like That stuff that what Chuck was saying about deciding what stuff to delete, it's brutal, and sometimes you screw up, and you're like, oh... Mm-hmm. I really needed that, even though it was from an old project. And so one thing that helped me a lot, I bought a, it's a home NAS, so network attached storage, basically a, a miniature computer you put hard drives in. Um, I got the one that has two spots for hard drives and they're in a RAID. So like, it's basically a mirrored copy of everything, which helps with backups and all that. And I think I have, I think it's one terabyte of space on there. And so anything large that I'm done working on, like after I render videos out, I'll put the source files on there. I'll put, you know, photos on there, all that stuff on there. Um, and so it's still accessible. I can still get to it from Wi-Fi or um, the gigabit Ethernet, but it's I don't have to worry about cleaning it off my computer. And 
I'm eventually going to, you know, upgrade. I think I'm looking at some four terabyte drives. So I'm going to upgrade that and just get a bunch more space. And these things are cheap. I mean, mine is, I think it costs maybe 200 bucks without the drives. And then the drives are probably 150 each will get you that. And just the amount of savings and time. And it's fast enough that you can actually do some work off of those files. So like I could actually, you know, render a video off of that instead of transferring it to my laptop. But yeah. just, you know, time saving wise, like it's, it's amazing. To throw some brand names out, are you talking about like a Drobo or a Synology or something? Yeah. Yeah. I have the Synology or however you pronounce it. And it's, a, it's an older model. But I mean, even I've worked with a couple of companies that have like the enterprise grade ones. And it's just, it's amazing to have like just this huge amount of storage, you know, on, you know, the network type thing. That's awesome. Although, frankly, I would say I, I priced it out a while ago. You can get the USB thumb drives. I think I got a hundred and these 128 gigabyte thumb drives for extremely cheap. We're using that to just throw files on and put in a safe as a, you know, a secondary, you know, disconnected backup. Like those things get so cheap. You could use those. And especially if like USB three speeds, like they can function almost as fast as your actual main internal drives. I want to veer this back toward the equipment purchases though. Cause like a Synology, you know, so that's a hundred and, 150 bucks I'm looking on Amazon right now. And that's the two bay that you were talking about. And then you've got the hard drives to go in it. So you're probably going to spend, you know, let, let's just say you spend $300 getting the whole thing together. So then how do you justify that? Because again, you know, it's kind of a backup situation or I could push this stuff to Dropbox or I could do all these other different things. So, you know, how do you decide that that's the way to go and, and that you're going to spend the money on it? I mean, what I do is I watch my time. I mean, you know, when I start, you know, I know my hourly rate that I can bill. If I start having to dig into that, you know, amount of time that I should be billing to a client to kind of do IT and actually track this time in my uh, project management system, then I know it's like, okay, I need to, I need to solve this. This is a problem in my business, whether it's because it's grown or just I'm, you know, not moving assets around the right way. If it's not a huge problem, like it comes up every now and then, it might kind of get pushed out like, okay, well, next month I have time to mess with this and I might have some, you know, additional money for it and I can budget for it. So I'll push it out. But if it's something like, you know, it's urgent, like every, like there was one time it was every week I was having problems with uh, disk space and just resources. And I basically, that was the time I'm like, okay, time to just buy a, a brand new top of the line laptop. And I had to kind of move stuff around to find the money um, just because at that time there's a, I had a cash flow crunch. But, you know, it was like, it's either that or I can't bill my client, which means I'm not going to bring in as much. Um, and it's, it's hard to really have a hard set, like, you know, at this point, do this. But if you have a little bit of awareness of how much time you're spending, or even if you're having to spend money to kind of keep old equipment running, um, that's the time to kind of consider upgrading or getting something new. I guess my other gray area money pit is uh, audio equipment. And, you know, I just, I, I love the stuff. I think it's cool. I like to buy it and have it and play with it and use it. But, I mean, I have a system that has worked well for me for the last few years. So sometimes I have trouble figuring out whether or not I should buy what I'm looking at because yep. I'm justifying it, right? Or sometimes I actually need it and sometimes figuring out whether or not it's the one or the other is hard. I mean, I'm a musician, so you're just totally speaking my language there. Like, there's no guitar that's too expensive for me to think it's probably worth it. But for me, that stuff, it's really a money thing. Like, the more I spend, the better it would be. But I can't afford anywhere near the top of the line. Mm -hmm. And especially for, you know, for me, music is a hobby now. It's not, I mean, it was serious for a while, but it's definitely a hobby now. So I, I can't justify the purchase. So it's, it's definitely categorized as like a 
birthday present type of thing. It's like uh, definitely a luxury. That said, there's a big difference between a really fine, crafted, precision instrument and an okay instrument. And if you are making your living with that instrument, you know, all of us sound like, well, actually, no, we're not all Mac people. Eric, you're a Linux guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but like for the Mac people, Mac people obviously care about this. Linux people obviously don't. (laughs) 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 Kidding. You know what I mean? Like if you, if your main instrument of your job is a fountain pen and a pad of paper or a guitar or a laptop, something that you're spending eight, 10, 12 hours a day touching and manipulating and just basically doing your job with. I feel like there's like an emotional component that is tough to describe. And I guess what I'm saying is like for things like that, which there probably are very few, there's probably three things in your daily carry that are like this to you, like your phone, your laptop, and I don't know what, maybe your your notebook and pen or something. Those things I feel like totally spend as much as you possibly can to get the best possible thing you can because it's going to change your whole attitude about doing your job every day. And if you just look at it in dollars and cents for those things, like your tools, your really key tools, I think it it gets hard to justify because it's kind of unquantifiable. But there are all sorts of great emotional benefits. Like you just feel like a professional. You feel like you can focus on what you're trying to do and your junky laptop's not distracting you from trying to get it done. And there's this weird side benefit, too, where when you're out and about, you kind of get perceived as more professional because you've got this really top-of-the-line gear. Obviously, this person is really serious about their profession. Uh, it's super true with instruments. It's maybe a little less true with, like, laptops or something. But it's definitely there. Like, I have, I don't know, maybe I'm just imagining it, but I've sensed, like, an increased level of trust in my capabilities as a consultant based on stuff I have with me, if you know what I mean. So there's like, it's like really hard to put a dollars and cents thing on for the really core stuff. I think just spend as much as you can on that stuff and go with it. I I mean, I definitely have a a set of tools that I use in my day-to-day work, especially when I'm lecturing, that I definitely feel like it's a well-oiled machine, right? So I I use the the three or four main tools that I'm using when I'm lecturing, say, on Python, I'm going to have Emacs, I'm going to have Keynote, uh, I'm going to have IPython Notebook, and I'm sure there's something else. So let's say three things. And if I have those things available, and they're customized, and they're exactly the way that I've sort of set them up to work, then yeah, I I look like a, a consummate professional because it works exactly the way that I want. I know what what to expect, and so it looks amazing. And actually, just uh, yesterday, I mean, I'm in Nanjing, China now, and uh, yesterday when I was uh, starting my course, I actually forgot my, uh, this is one of those great Apple things, right? I forgot the uh, video cord for my computer back in my hotel. So I, I got it at lunchtime, but for the first two, three hours of my lecture, I was using someone else's laptop. And the way I described it to my students was I felt like I was driving someone else's car. It's like, oh, the thing is here, and oh, it's there, and oh, the, the, you know, it just didn't feel right. And I know that I didn't look nearly as good as I do when I'm on my own machine. So I definitely think that investing both the money and the time in the tools that will flow with you easily and best is certainly worthwhile, both from the productivity perspective and from the sort of political how-you-come-off-looking perspective. 
Yeah, I put it in my contracts that I will present off my laptop, not somebody else's, not even another Mac. You can't do it. It's like mm -hmm. it's like all of a sudden my hands don't work. I'm like, how do I operate a machine? I know, right? I mean, even best case scenario, you're working off of like keynote slides and you have your own little clicker and it all plugs in and it all sort of works. But the second you try and demo something or go off script, you're hosed. So, yeah. Fortunately, in Israel, almost everyone uses Windows. And so, if I'm at a conference and I'm supposed to speak and they say, "Oh, well, you'll just put your presentation on our machine and we'll use it from there." And I say no, and 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 they give me a bit of a pushback. I say, "Well, you don't have Keynote running on your Windows machine, do you?" And I get this nice blank stare. I say, "Yeah, I'll just use my machine." <laughs> yeah. So are there other areas of expense that we haven't really talked about? I guess one other thing that I'm thinking about is like the chair I'm sitting in is a rather nice chair. It's a Herman Miller Aeron, which is super comfortable. And, you know, it makes a big difference for me just being able to get stuff done and have an environment that I'm comfortable working in. But I don't know that everybody needs a $900 chair. And sometimes I wonder if I should have spent the money on it, you know, even though it's a super nice chair and I can adjust it to be pretty much supportive however I need it to be. But do you find yourself buying hardware like that? And how do you make those calls? Not to sound like a broken record, but anything that I'm using every day, I spend as much as I can afford to spend on. And pretty much that is work stuff only. I don't do it. I barely do any family stuff every day. So I don't even sleep in the same place every day. Like, but work, I do this uh, like every day, same laptop, every day, same bag, every day, same pen, every day, same phones. Every day, same chair if I'm going to sit down that day. If I'm not going to sit down every day, same standing desk. So I blow cash on that stuff because, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but it just changes my whole attitude about, like, it's like going to my safe place, I guess. I don't know. I was going to say, is that to facilitate routine? Or is it so that, you know, uh, as you're using stuff, it just doesn't glitch? It's more about the friction. It's Yeah, it's glitching. It's like imagine a phone that had a three-second delay on every interaction. It would drive you insane. And that's what it's like when, uh, like recently I reorganized my desk and I, I spent probably two hours organizing the cables because they had gotten into a bit of a rat's nest. And every time I went to plug something in, it was this, uh, this like friction of uh, untangling this wire was hooked on a garbage can and it was driving me bananas. This dumb, it was so silly, this silly little thing. So I got my little cable organizers and I set it up on the desk and I get my little workspace all set up. And it was like my shoulders came down two inches after I had it all, you know, I took a picture of it for crying out loud. I was like, ah, perfect. And I don't know, maybe it's because we work for ourselves or we work from home or whatever and we need to set up our, our space that way. But even in my corporate jobs, I like to have my workspace set up so you can just show up and immediately get productive. I don't know if I, this is a little bit, I guess this is a tangent. I'll keep it really short, but I, I recently read uh, an article by Sean D'Souza who wrote the brain audit and he does this thing where he doesn't close any of his open windows and his applications on his laptop. He just closes the laptop, you know, goes somewhere else or comes back the next day and opens it up. And there are all the tab is right where he left off, which was hard. Like I laughed out loud when I read that because that is the exact opposite of what I do. Like every time at the end of the day, I would close all the tabs into my clean desktop and everything would be organized. And I next day, I'd start from scratch. But I gave it a try. And even as small of a 
switching cost again, even as small as it is, that cognitive load of reopening all those same five tabs that I keep open all day, you know, calendar, Basecamp, GitHub, uh, email, you know, whatever. Every single day I'd close those and then I'd reopen them. Then I'd close them and reopen them. And I even had a script that would open them for me automatically, but then I have to wait for them to open. <clears throat> now I just leave them open and I, I, I can't tell you why, but it's better. And it's the same thing with my gear. Like I want my gear to be ready for me. I shouldn't have to wait for my gear. You don't want to be around me if my computer's running slow. Let me tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, uh, my brother-in-law is a physical therapist. And so every time he would come to visit and he'd see me at my cheapo chair and my card table that I use at a desk, it would just drive him bananas. So I think about two years ago already, I invested in a better chair. Maybe not a fancy one like Chuck, but like better certainly. And it's definitely a good feeling. Like maybe it's more than two years ago, but, but not much more. And it definitely feels more productive. It feel, feels more comfortable. As Jonathan said, if you're going to sit for many hours a day at your desk, like you, sh- you should feel comfortable there. So it's definitely a-, a place that's worth spending some money on. Yeah, this does remind me of one other thing that I'm a little curious on, and that is that, um, so I've been eyeing uh, standing desks for a while. And, you know, I, I hear all the people saying, yeah, they're great, and, you know, I love, I love how I feel standing up and all that stuff, which makes sense to me, but, you know, I'm, not 100% convinced that I'm going to use one. And so I'm not sure I want to go spend four or $500 on, you know, even the kind of moderately priced um, standing desks. So on something like that, I mean, if it's like a recurring service, you know, like you all said, and, you know, I, I completely agree because it's what I do too. You try it out for a little while and then you just cancel the service. But you can't really cancel your standing desk. Is is there a good way to try it before you buy it with sort of the physical things? Yeah, like what I did with that, um, my wife actually worked at a company that made them. Um, and so when she started working there and we found out there's a you know very sizable employee discount, uh, what I did is I took my existing desk, which was just, you know, cheapy Ikea one. Actually, I got the extendable legs on it, so it would go higher. I did that and I'm taller as it is, so I had to put like a whole bunch of weird things underneath it and then on top of it, I basically made a fake standing desk, kind of like all the the hacks that you see all all over the place now with that. But I did that and tried that for about a month, I think, and actually gave it a good try. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I could see this working for me. And the benefit was is the the desk that my at the company my wife worked at they they're not standing desks; they're sit and stand. Like they're they have the hydraulics, so they go up and down. And so I was like, okay, worst case, I'd buy this. I can't use it standing. I would just have a very expensive, you know, very nice quality desk that I sit at. And they're way more sturdier than, you know, the cheap Ikea ones I had and all that. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll get one and try it out. Did that. It actually works so good that I actually have two now. Um, I have one that's my main one and it actually can fit a treadmill underneath it. Um, and then I have another one that basically is like my backup desk. It's a, a second desk, has our, our, the Mac on it when I do multimedia stuff and all that. But, you know, to kind of giving, kind of like what I said with the, even the SaaS stuff, like I, I did an experiment. I was like, okay, for the next 30 days, I'm going to try this. If the results are positive, I will move forward. If the results are negative, I will, I won't do it. And I mean, some things like chairs and stuff like that, like you might even be able to return them to the store. A lot of the higher end equipment, um, they have very good return policies or warranties on them. So, you know, if it doesn't quite work out, you might be able to exchange it, get a different size, different fit, or even just get your money back completely. 
Standing Dust is a really specific example. Um, uh, they're not for everyone. I love it. But I knew I was going to love it because I was cobbling them together, like Eric said, out of stools and tables and, and bureaus for a year before I dropped the coin on one. Uh, it, but they're definitely not for everyone. I have friends who've invested with them and regretted it. So it, it's definitely, so for something like that, if you can't return it, then definitely do the experiment because that's, they're not cheap. So, you know, I don't know how that applies to other big part. I can't actually think of another big purchase. I mean, another one I could see is like if you get a huge monitor, like a 30 inch monitor that are like a grand or so, mm. like, you know, maybe, you know, I found 24 inch monitors were extremely cheap and they were almost as big. So I actually bought two of those and was using those for a while and they were pretty good size and I adjusted it. So they, it kind of mimics the size of a 30 inch. I ended up not buying a 30 inch because one of those broke and on the warranty return, I got upgraded to like a 26 inch, which is like just enough. Like I don't need a large one. Um, but even that, if you bought one, you know, there might be a 30 day return policy on a huge monitor like that. But I think what you need to do is you need to go into it with, here's the conditions that I'm going to say this is good, or here's the conditions I'm going to say it's bad and be very definite about it. Don't go into it saying, I think this will work for me and kind of hemming and hawing and then miss out on that, that opportunity to kind of go back on the purchase. Another big area for me that I think is in this topic is travel expenses. I don't know if that's a good topic to explore. Um, yeah, I think it's something that uh, at least I can talk about. I might, I, I flew back from Fort Worth yesterday, so it's, <laughs> it's at least top of mind for me. Yeah, I take the Alan Weiss position that you should be as first class as possible because it has all kinds of, again, it's like if you do the math, it's not going to make sense, but when you spend a night at a Ritz instead of La Quinta before an important client meeting, it makes a major difference in your attitude and your, like the whole experience of going into a really, really nice hotel, which is probably two or three, maybe even four times more expensive than your cheapest option. You're going to have a completely different mindset the next morning when you walk into that meeting or you walk into that presentation or you go to that conference to deliver a keynote. You're going to feel like a rock star. And if you stay at a La Quinta or whatever, not to, not to bash on them, but like a budget hotel, it's going to be a gross room with gross sheets and a gross shower, terrible service, you know, just like no service, frankly and broken heater and everything, no iron or the iron ruins your shirt. It's just unbelievable, you know, for the extra money. I've never regretted staying in a really nice place. And I've even, uh, I used to go to Miami a lot. And for some reason, the airline I used to take, I think it was American. If first class wasn't full, you could upgrade to first class for a hundred bucks. And I'd do it every single time because you end up making like these crazy business contacts and hearing amazing stories, and and I'm not the kind of guy to talk on a plane either, but uh, you know it's just a comfortable seat, tons of room, free food and beverage, and is it worth a hundred bucks? You know, for the whatever, a free wine? No, but the overall user experience is so pristine, and travel is so horrible. Like if you're traveling all the time, it really hurts. It really is bad. So like doing things like this that might sound like a waste of money or a splurge or something has a major, for at least for me, a major psychic benefit that translates into the delivery of whatever service I'm there to provide. 
Yeah, I can kind of add to that this. uh, So usually when I fly, I wind up flying coach, which is I get to the hotel and I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to die. And I don't want to be around any people at all for the next 24 hours, which isn't something that you can usually do when you're going to a conference when I fly in anyway. But uh, this last trip, the cost for me to upgrade to first class was $30 each way. And so I did it. I just, you know, I was like, that's kind of a no brainer. I'll do that. Totally. So, uh, you know, and I mean, it was a two and a half hour flight, so it wasn't awful anyway. But I mean, when I got to Dallas, um, I was pretty refreshed. I mean, I felt, you know, I didn't feel like I had been crammed in a little box and shipped across the country. I, you know, I, it felt good. I, yeah, I got to meet some interesting people in the, first class cabin, you know, you're, you're the first ones on and the first ones off the plane. I mean, it just, it really paid off. And plus one on the other deal too. I've, you know, I've done travel where I wound up staying at some budget hotel somewhere. Yeah. You know, I wake up from that with, you know, probably worse off than when I went to sleep because the bed's not comfortable in the place and stuff like that. But, uh, I stay, I usually stay at the conference hotel if I'm going to a conference and, uh, it's just way nice. I would normally like, I mean, when I fly, it's usually pretty long distances, like from Israel to China or from Israel to the U.S. And I can basically sleep anywhere and fine, so I'm tall, so I'd prefer to have more leg room, but that's less and less possible on most airlines. And so far, it's been pretty rare for me to be able to fly anything other than coach, mostly because it's simply my clients paying. But, you know, there, there are different ways they can route me to different places. And so I finally put my foot down this time and I said, okay, this is the last time I'm flying to uh, China via Moscow. It's just horrible. And I've had a terrible travel experience so far. It's going to get worse when I go back to Israel. And definitely on the occasions when I've flown, even business class, I definitely arrive happier, more refreshed and everything. And I would have until a few days ago said, ah, come on, Jonathan, like a fancier hotel doesn't really make that much of a difference. Um, and this past weekend, I was in Shanghai, and someone said, oh, I never stay at regular hotels. I stay at, and this is in China, I, I assume places like this exist elsewhere, um, like executive apartments. And I was like, okay, sounds interesting. And then I got to Nanjing two days ago, and that's where they had put me. And let me tell you, it is the best. <laughs> it is just so great. I've got a bedroom, I've got a living room, I've got a kitchen, and I feel really great about it. And so I, I, I'm definitely going to put stock in what Jonathan said about being in a nicer hotel. I feel like I can work here. I don't feel like I'm cramped somewhere terrible. The staff has gone out of its way, crazy out of its way, to accommodate me on the very, very few things I need. So I, I may start becoming more demanding or more selective when clients want me to go places, given my experience here and how positive it was. Maybe this is partly an age thing. Like I did the sleeping on the backseat of a van and floors and crashing on people's couches back in my musician days. Like I'm just so over that. But maybe it's an age thing. So who knows? But the other thing that you brought up that I feel I forgot to mention is that if I'm, you know, flying around, taking, flying around, like upgrading myself to first class and staying at the Ritz, I never charge my clients for that. That's in fact one of the things that I put in my contract is that when somebody hires me, uh, I pay for all, I, I make all my travel arrangements and lodging and I pay for them all out of the, like out of my own pocket. So I never get into the conversation of like, oh boy, you know, when you're on our dime, you sure like to live it up, don't you? So then it's always up to me to say, oh, you know, I can stay wherever I want. I can spend as much as I want. And I never have to answer to anybody about, 
you know, I don't have to explain to some, to someone in the accounting department why I spent $3,000 to get there. Yeah, right. I mean, in my case, basically, when I come to China, it's through a company that includes my travel in their budgeting. And so when I've complained in the past about some of the travel arrangements, they're like, well, you know, going on LL directly, uh, would that, that would break the bank in terms of the budget. Uh, so there's no way for me to break it out, but I can totally see how that solved that problem right away. Yeah, the one thing with travel that I've been trying to figure out lately is whether or not it's worth it to take a taxi or an Uber to the hotel as opposed to renting a car. Um, oh, interesting. I never rent cars. I me so much either. prefer either public transportation or taxis or Uber or whatever. I actually just used Uber for the first time last week in Shanghai. What a great deal. <laughs> I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, the the issue is is that I've been uh, jerked around by taxi drivers. You know, so I'll, I'll get on my phone, I'll tell it to map out how to get to where we're going, and they drive halfway around the city before they get there, and uh, stuff like that. But it still winds up being cheaper than renting a car. And, you know, the other thing is, though, is that when I get into town, um, a lot of times I'm going to want to go to a convenience store and pick up a few things. You know, I just like having a few snacks around and stuff, especially because a lot of times I run into blood sugar issues, and it costs, like, a ton to get food from the hotel. So, you know, I, I usually am dealing with something like that. So I have rented cars in the past, but, and, and taxis are just kind of prohibitive to drive you to Walgreens and back or something. But I try never to use taxis. Like before Uber, I would always get a, a town car if I could. And like, like crazily, they're almost the same price as a taxi. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. They're barely any more money, or at least in, in my experience, they've, you know, maybe you're going to spend 35, 45 with tip for a taxi and it's like 60 for a town car. But the town car, guy's not going to bug you in the town car. It's clean. You oh, know, yeah. Hushed. It's like comfortable the air conditioning. It's not the windows down and blowing you all over the place. But I used to do one regularly, especially back and forth to the airport in my hometown. And I'd spend 80 bucks for a 12 minute drive because they were guaranteed to show up when they said they were going to show up. The experience was always perfect, and I could just walk out of the car. It was prepaid. Everything. I didn't have to worry about anything. The guy was pre-tipped. I just get out of the car. You know, at five o'clock in the morning, I'm not feeling that talkative. So you just walk out of the house. The guy grabs your bags, throws them in the trunk. You slide in the back of this slick car, and next thing you know, you're at the airport and you're at your gate. But I haven't used them once since Uber came to town. Uber's ten times cheaper. Same quality experience. I've never had a problem with it. And even when somebody did make a wrong turn or something, Uber themselves emails you later and is like, hey, we noticed that there was a shorter route between your two points, so we're going to give you a refund for the difference. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. Wow. That is brilliant. Uber is crushing it. But they're not in every town. So advice for travelers is I would try Uber first. And then try a black car service from the hotel and back. You'll probably find that it's barely, it'll be a little, maybe 10 or 20% more expensive than a taxi. But still, oh, totally you, don't worth it. That, you don't have to wait in that line. It doesn't smell like smoke. All that stuff. Well, you know, and for my quirk, I mean, they're totally fine to stop at wherever, you know, on the way in. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the taxi drivers all roll their eyes, you know, when I'm like, hey, I want to stop at a convenience store. And then I want to stop at, you know. Yeah. This other place, and then I want to go to the hotel, and they're just like, oh. <laughs> I know. The toot on the taxi drivers. In my town, the taxi drivers have the most unbelievable attitude. Yeah. It's not worth putting up with. Agree. 
I mean, a lot of this, I mean, thinking through, you know, the travel, going back through like the equipment, like, you know, chair, computer, even like, you know, oh, I'm running out of hard drive space. Like a lot of this comes back to, it might not be worth it like financially, but if you kind of factor in like the health costs, the mental costs, the, I'm going to get pissed off at my computer, want to throw it out the window cost, like they actually, the, you know, these getting these upgrades or getting kind of the higher end services actually has a really high positive ROI. And I think a lot of people, especially when you first start out, you're not aware of it. Like you don't notice that sort of thing. Like there's been times where, you know, I would literally want to throw my desktop out the window and it would affect me for the rest of the day and I wouldn't be as productive. And, you know, having a quality laptop now, like I don't ever deal with that. And so I think that's something that you kind of need to factor into like what you're doing is like, how is this actually going to help me? Because you're selling your services. It's based on you know your experience, your skills, your knowledge, you know your creativity. And if there's things like Jonathan was saying, if there's like friction affecting that and making that worse, you know you're not gonna your services aren't gonna be as valuable. And so I think you know getting rid of that friction, whatever it ends up being, you know that's that's hugely valuable. And I mean even for me, like I found exercise helps me, and that's something that's you know, pretty much a low cost that has a time commitment, but that's helped me become more creative, which has helped me do better things for my clients, which has helped me charge more, which means I bill more, which means I get more revenue. I can take more time off for exercise. And it actually gets into like this really nice cycle of like, I have this nice stuff, this nice life, this nice lifestyle because I started investing in the places and removing friction from it. Yeah. I feel like this is starting to verge into a mentality area, which is probably a good thing to bring up which is the difference between a poverty mentality and an abundance mentality. And it's sort of like the difference between always trying to cut in, to cut costs and always or, or versus trying to increase value or quality or uh, that kind of thing. And it's funny, like maybe, maybe our opinions about this have a lot to do with what we sell, which is more of this sort of value side. And none of us really offer commodities which is the flip side. That's the cost side. So perhaps I'm just sort of wondering out loud if there's a correlation between being able to offer services that add value instead of appear like a cost center and our dedication or devotion to doing those sorts of things for ourselves. So we are internalized the value of that sort of thing, the kind of thing that maybe on a balance sheet doesn't make sense, but experientially, there's no question. I don't know. I, I feel like there must be a correlation there. Like, I don't think I could show up at a consulting gig with a CEO of a company. I mean, like, I had a meeting this morning with the CEO of a, a financial institution. I'm not going to show up in, like, ratty clothes and a junky car and, you know, after staying in a crappy hotel and be able to act like a peer of this person and be able to give them advice and like look them straight in the eye and say, no, this is what you need to do. You know what I mean? Maybe it's shallow. I feel a little shallow saying that, but it's not just a question of who the expert is, like how smart you are, or what's right or what's wrong. There's like a lifestyle angle to it. I don't know. Maybe is that too weird? It sounds, maybe that's too weird. No, it makes sense to me. I mean, it's not, I mean, how you represent yourself is how, in a lot of cases, other people perceive you. And so, you know, yeah, you, you want to show up as fresh and ready to go for your client as you can. Yeah, but it's also how I see myself. I am not going to put myself through these things. I don't know. Well, 
somebody said something. Um, I'm trying to remember. It was sometime this weekend anyway. Somebody was talking about, you know, speaking at conferences or, you know, attending conferences and the way you dress. Yeah, it was over lunch with David Brady, so it was last Monday. Um, but he mentioned that when you dress up and things like that, you know, it's it's much easier if you're, you know, dressing that way frequently and things like that. I think that really comes down to how you see yourself. So you don't walk in acting like I've dressed up for this. You walk in feeling comfortable the way that you are presented because it's congruent with who you are. Well, yeah. it's, it's also more than that, too. Like, uh, you know, part of the fake it till you make it. I was at a microconf and uh, there's two people there who, well, a couple more than that, but there's two I noticed that had, you know, nice jeans on, nice polo on, but they had like a, what's called sports jacket on. And I was like, wow, they dress really nice. And then come to find out, I talked with one and he actually just bought that the week before. He never wore it before in his entire life. Like just looking at him in the crowd, I was like, he looks like, you know, an important person that I'd want to talk to. Um, and, you know, it wasn't an expensive one. It wasn't like, you know, fancy brand name, but, you know, he wanted to feel, you know, more of a consultant that he is. And so that's what he did. Yeah, there's something to it. I think, have we talked about my shoe fetish on this show before? No. I, nope. I will spend coin on shoes because, first of all, I think they are a good investment because they last forever. And assuming my feet don't change size and they're comfortable, they look good. And people notice shoes, like speaking of the jacket, like I've had entire conference panels turn to a conversation about my shoes. Like if he's wearing those shoes, I'm listening to him, literally. <laughs> That's awesome. That's there are psychological things. And it's psychological on you too, right? The way you dress and the way you look and the way you feel like you look. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to be, have more, like, oh, I'm going to pull out my nice pants, you know, and you pull them out of the closet. They don't fit right anymore. <laughs> they're kind of, they're more threadbare than you remembered. But, oh, man, the meeting's in 15 minutes. I got to strap these things on somehow. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, feel, I almost just said it's just not professional, but there's more to it than that. It's, it's something about self-respect and your, your yeah. view of the world. It's like it's, you're worth I, investing in. So invest in yourself. I must admit that wearing fancy clothes does not really like, make me feel any different at all. I mean, there's definitely a difference between like T-shirt, jeans, and sandals and button-down shirt, jeans, and sandals. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll grant you that. But, you know, putting on fancy shoes, I, all I can think of is, oh, oh, my God, these things are so annoying. <laughs> yeah, because you've never spent good money on them. No, no, I've had good <laughs> shoes. I've had good shoes. Oh, and, I, and I'm married to an, to, to an art historian and curator, so, like, she's also always nudging me, like, you know, you really should dress better. I'm like, you know, I'm really comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I'm comfortable, too. I'm, I normally wear flip-flops and shorts, probably just like you do. But I couldn't, if I shambled into a meeting with like a big financial institution with, <laughs> they'd laugh me out of there. Even though it could be the smartest guy in the world, I could have a million dollar idea for them. That, but if I walked in there with flip flops on, you know, and said like, hey guys, sup? No, no, I, I, I recognize that. That, that. That's the thing. Like, I mean, you were saying that you like, get dressed a fancy sort of for yourself. Um, I totally recognize, I mean, in Israel, no one really cares how you, how you oh, dress. I see. I see. But like, when I'm in China, like, so I always lecture with a button-down shirt, whereas in Israel, like, they would think that I was on my way to a wedding or something. Well, yeah, there's but, the whole notion of, you don't want to be overdressed either, but you, you know, if they're wearing a bikini, you want to have shorts on. If they're wearing shorts, you want to have pants <laughs> on. Right. You, know, right. you want to be yeah. a, just a level up. Like, if I walked into Facebook with a three-piece suit on, they would also laugh me out. Right. 
Unless it was a hipster three-piece suit, in which case they'd probably like me. <laughs> I want to see Jonathan in a zoot suit. <laughs> that would be something. No, I don't go nuts. Just like, you know, nice shoes, nice khaki pants, button-down shirt, ironed, 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 all that stuff. Yep. I don't go tie. If it's, if it's not hot out, I'll wear a jacket. You know, standard consultant wear. It's not hard. Just go into Brooks Brothers and tell them to set you up like the mannequin. <laughs> I want what he's wearing. All right. Well, should we get to some picks? <laughs> sure. Sure. All right. Reuven, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So I've got some picks. Uh, so two of them, actually. Uh, one of them is, well, I'm in China, as I said, and China, you might have heard, restricts people's access to many services on the Internet. So... Basically, if you travel here, you need a VPN. Um, and I've been using, for probably about a year or so now, this company called ExpressVPN. And it's consistently ranked as really easy to install. And one of the things, and any lesser known VPN, so the Chinese government tends to crack down on it less. So, you know, it only gets disconnected every, you know, every few hours. So I've been, I've been very happy with them. And it seems to work most of the time. It gives me access to my services. But I've actually found that even when I'm not in China, sometimes if I'm working at a client's office and they give me internet access, it's highly restricted. Like I can't download my mail or I can't go to various websites. And so I've actually found it handy to have VPN service on my computer uh, just because it, it then gives me the freedom to do what I want and not have to worry about their various policies. Uh, the second thing is I've been reading this book called Young Money, Inside the Hidden World of Wall Street's Post-Crash Recruits. And basically, um, it's this uh, reporter who found a bunch of young people who just graduated from college, and they went to work on Wall Street. And they were all excited about, oh, we're going to be in finance, we're going to make a lot of money, and it's so exciting and terrific. And basically, not all of them, but many of them are like, oh my God, I'm working crazy hours for good money, but not amazing money, and I'm being abused. And do I really need this in my life? And some of the people take to it just fine. But first of all, like, it made me feel even more thankful for my work and the fact that I have such freedom in it. And second of all, I, I think it's very instructive to see how much people are willing to put themselves through chasing an illusion of, well, if I just get through the first two years, then it'll be great. If I just get through the first three years, it'll be great. Um, and as he points out there, uh, at least on Wall Street, and it's probably true in life in general, you're always going to find someone who's more successful, who's richer, who's, who's whatever-er than you are. And so if you're always comparing yourself to the other people, then you're just never going to be satisfied. And so taking a step back and saying, you know, actually things are pretty good and being satisfied with what you've got is, is a nice sort of upshot of the book, I think, as well. Anyway, those are my picks for this week. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? All right, I got two. One is a comic strip that's pretty relevant, uh, Commit Strip. Uh, the title of this one is A Very Common Coder's Useful Mistake. Um, it's a funny one, especially talking about equipment. Uh, second one is an article called, get a deep breath here. The one thing every aspiring freelancer, college student, or person with access to a time machine should know. Um, it's by Paul Jarvis. It's an interesting one, kind of a little bit about like meta about business and kind of thinking about that. I think, you know, whether you're full-time freelancing, you've been doing it part-time, you're thinking about it. Uh, I think it's a good read to kind of you know, get an idea and kind of see a little bit of the mental game of, you know, running your own business. And that's it. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? First is a gadget pick. I've been dying to get my hands on an Amazon Echo, and ours finally showed up yesterday. 
Those uh, sound cool. Oh, man, is it great. It's roughly the size of a Pringles can, and uh, you stand it upright like we put it on our kitchen counter, plugs into the wall, and I have never felt more like I was living in the future than when I plugged that thing in the first time. It's kind of like Siri. People are probably familiar with Siri, like the voice assistant on the iPhone, but it's for your house. And it is so much more useful in such a different way when it's in your environment and it's just always there. And I mean, I just got it the other day, but I'm I remember seeing the video for it. I remember seeing the video and I remember the reaction was so incredibly negative. I thought to myself, why are these people negative? It seems incredibly cool and useful. So I'm happy to hear it is. Yeah, the video was the video felt a little contrived because they because they of course the examples were all jammed together, but in the context of a day, you start to talk to it, and, and so now the weird thing about it is there's it's beautifully designed, and it has this the the top edge is a circle, and it's got this LED multicolored LED light ring around it, and it does all sorts of things to indicate that it's listening, that it's looking at you that it heard you, that it's processing, you know, think like, uh, it's not like, not like, I'm trying to think of a, like a Star Wars robot or a Star Trek, but I can't think of one. They all, none of them really have lights, maybe R2-D2, but it feels very quickly like something that I almost said, a, not a part of the family, but it, it feels like a, a new, an assistant. It feels like there's an assistant in your house, not quite a person, of course, but you can just say stuff. Alexa, what time is it? Uh, Alexa, play The Martian from Audible and the book starts playing. Or Alexa, play Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, Alexa, play Jimi Hendrix on Pandora. Oh, and I, I should mention, the thing itself is a Bluetooth speaker and a really nice sounding one, in fact. And then you can say, Alexa, turn it up. Alexa, turn it down. Alexa, stop, pause, resume. All this stuff, and it's it's all stuff that everybody's familiar with from their phones, but I can't tell you how much different it is to have it not in your pocket. You don't have to pull it out. It's always on. It's always listening. And, man, for 179 bucks, it is pretty sweet. Uh, it also, um, you can connect it to uh, IFT, I-F-T-T-T, to automate other things in your life. You can use it to control your Hue light bulbs if you have those. I mean, it is very, very full-featured, incredibly well done. The voice recognition is jaw-dropping, and is it's there only a subscription be- cost. Nope. I mean, you, it works better with Prime, but you don't have to use Prime. You can or- have it to reorder things. Alexa, remind me to get bread. Alexa, put bread on my shopping list. All of this stuff. It syncs instantly and seamlessly across iOS and Android devices. It's unbelievable. I mean, they did a great job on this thing. And so you get to name it. You keep saying Alexa instead of Echo. no. So yeah. So Echo is the the device. Uh huh. Alexa is Amazon's new voice service. So think. Oh, okay. So Echo is like an iPhone, and Alexa is like Siri. So Alexa is actually has been opened up to developers so that they can use Alexa inside of other applications. It just happens to be, it's their Siri. They're trying to knock off Siri, but man, did they do a better job than Siri is you can sw- switch the name, but you can only switch it to, the only other option is Amazon. So you can say, Amazon, add this to my list, Amazon, play this Audible book. It is really, really amazing. And unbelievably, it's only been, it hasn't even been out. I think it was released earlier this year to the general public, and it already has over 22,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. I mean, everybody is digging this thing. It is really, really worth the money. I'm already planning to buy another one for downstairs. That's cool. Do they talk to each other then? 
I mean, not I, talk, talk. Alexa, yes, Alexa. But I meant like that would be really no, funny. <laughs> it's a it's a good question because you know, like I've got a bunch of Android devices. And when I say okay, Google, like seventeen things ask me what I want. So I, I don't know what's going to happen if you have two of them in the same house and and they're both within earshot of each other. But uh, there's no way I'm leaving this one in the kitchen. I'm putting it into my office. So I'll probably have to get another one for the kitchen. But it's a great question. I'm not sure how they operate, if they conflict in any way. Because you connect it to your Wi-Fi and it goes directly to the Internet. It's not Bluetoothing to your phone, although it can do that if you want to play stuff off your phone. It's going straight to the Internet with no, no intermediation. It's like right on your Wi-Fi. It goes straight to Audible or Pandora or iHeartRadio or Ift or whatever. Oh, so you just hook it up to whatever services you want it to talk to, and it just does its thing? Yeah, you go to the app, and you do the OAuth dance with whatever, you Google Calendar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They did an amazing job. I cannot believe this is a ver- version one product. It's hilarious when you compare it to Fire Phone, which is complete and obvious disaster as soon as it was released. <laughs> so that's that was a long pick, so um, I'll just leave it at that. All right, well... Uh... I've got a couple of things mostly related to podcast movement, which is the uh, conference that I went to this last weekend. First off, I just want to shout out to the guys that uh, I had uh, dinner with on Thursday. Uh, They listened to some of the shows, including this one. And uh, just uh, thanks to uh, John and uh, Stephen Proctor for setting that up. That was awesome. And I really like to get to know people. So what I think I'm going to do is... I really want to hear your feedback, especially since past guest of the show, Kirk Bowman, uh, gave me some feedback. He said that he prefers the episodes where we don't have guests. I think sometimes it's nice to have guests. I can see, I, I think we have an awesome panel. So yeah, sometimes I don't think we uh, take advantage of the awesomeness that we have here every week. But I kind of want to hear your feedback. I want to hear, and not just about the show, but specifically about the show, I want to hear, you know, which episodes you tend to like and what the show means to you, you know, so is it a good source of information? Do you feel like you're listening to a bunch of buddies? Uh, I'm just throwing things out that I've heard before about other shows in this show. You know, is it just something to kind of pass the time while you're driving? I mean, I'm, I'm fine with any of that. And then I'd also like to just hear what challenges you have. And so what I'm going to do is, first off, we have a voicemail line. I haven't put the number on the website, and I ought to do that. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and give you the voicemail number if you want to just uh, dial in and tell us what you think. The number is one eight seven seven. This is a U.S. number, obviously. 223-0342, and it has an option for this show. I think it's number three or number four. But anyway, so you just listen, and you can do that. The other thing is, is if you go to freelancershow.com slash 15 minutes, that's one five minutes all jammed together. It'll take you to a place where you can actually get a 15-minute slot on my calendar where I'll talk to you over Skype. And I really do want to just have these quick conversations about this and and see who's listening and what's up and all that stuff. So, yeah, so go check that out, uh, freelancershow.com slash 15 minutes. So that's that's all I've got. So we'll wrap up the show. Thanks, guys. That was a terrific discussion. All right, great. Thanks. Excellent. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 